Welcome aboard the Coastal Connection. I'm Jennifer Ritter Guidry, your guide for this trip through Louisiana's coastal wetlands. M I S S I S S I P P I. Let's do the fun way. You want to do it quick? Okay. Sure. One, two, three. M I. Crooked letter, crooked letter. I. Crooked letter, crooked letter. I. Humpback, humpback, I. Hi, I'm Nicole Harris. And I'm Amelie Harris. And we're from Natchez, Mississippi. So, yeah, it's always fun to stay connected when we can't be together. So, for this episode, I called in a few friends of mine who live over in Natchez, Mississippi. You'll hear them throughout the show. I hope you enjoy hearing from them and learning some of their cool facts and interesting information. It was really great to just talk about the Mississippi. We live along it together, but so far apart. So in addition to my buddies over in Natchez, Mississippi, we'll also hear from historian John Barry giving us an overview of the Mississippi River and how it's been controlled by man over the last several centuries. After that, we'll get a better understanding of how the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers works to mitigate floods and uh, control the Mississippi River. We'll visit with Colonel Stephen Murphy with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and learn more about their operations down in the New Orleans district. And finally, we'll wrap things up with Philip Gould and Ben Hickey. Philip is a photographer, and he and his wife Margot Hasha have a new book out, Bridging the Mississippi, Spans Across the Father of Waters. And Philip's here with Ben Hickey, the curator at the Hilliard University Art Museum in Lafayette, Louisiana. They'll talk about the companion exhibit and how the, the stories of the bridges are really stories about people and the water and our relationship to it. So it's going to be a great episode all about the mighty Mississippi. John Barry is a prize-winning and New York Times best-selling author whose books have won multiple major awards. The National Academies of Science named his 2004 book, The Great Influenza, The Story of the Deadliest Pandemic in History, that year's outstanding book on science and medicine. His earlier book, Rising Tide, The Great Mississippi Flood of 1927 and How It Changed America, won the Francis Parkman Prize of the Society of American Historians for the year's best book on American history. And in 2005, that same book was named by the New York Public Library as one of the 50 best books in the preceding 50 years. His articles have appeared in such scientific journals as Nature and the Journal of Infectious Disease, as well as in lay publications ranging from Sports Illustrated to Politico. His work has involved him in two areas of public policy. In 2004, the National Academies of Science asked him to give the keynote speech at its first international scientific meeting on pandemic influenza. Both the Bush and the Obama administrations sought his advice on influenza, preparedness and response, and he continues his activity in this area. He has been equally active in water issues. After Hurricane Katrina, the Louisiana congressional delegation asked him to chair a bipartisan working group on flood protection and from its founding in 2007 until October 2013, he served on the Southeast Louisiana Flood Protection Authority East, 
which oversees levee districts in metropolitan New Orleans, and on the Louisiana Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority, which is responsible for the state's hurricane protection. He left those boards because of his role in a lawsuit against ExxonMobil, Shell, BP, Chevron, and 93 other oil, gas, and pipeline companies for the damage they have done to the flood protection system in the board's jurisdiction. Tonight, we are honored to have him here to discuss the tip of the spear, Louisiana, the river, and the sea. Obviously, this state is intimately involved in water. And when I think of the Mississippi River, which largely defines Louisiana, this is what I think of. I, I honestly don't think of a straight line that runs from Minnesota south. You could just as easily say it begins near Buffalo, New York, as in Minnesota, or in Canada, Saskatchewan, Alberta, in the Rocky Mountains. I even managed to deduct from my taxes as a business expense a trip to Taos, New Mexico, because that's about 30 miles from one tributary of the Mississippi River. All of that obviously comes down here. All of it affects this state. What is happening in Louisiana, as probably everybody in the audience knows, is going to happen everywhere in the world. We are first, or just about, or we really are first. In some areas, we're tied for first, but most of them, we are first. And they, there are multiple factors that have gone into the problem. The Eads jetties, if you go back, you know, right now, there are off the tip of the boot, there are jetties that extend two and a half miles out into the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, James Eads was one of the most brilliant engineers in history. Uh, in the 1930s, deans of American Colleges of Engineering named him one of the five greatest engineers of all time, uh, with Da Vinci and Thomas Edison and so forth. Uh, and he's easily, I think, the greatest engineer ever to work on the Mississippi River. The river builds land, as I think everybody here knows. Uh, it carries a tremendous amount of sediment. Historically, uh, before humans interfered, it carried, it was number seven in terms of the sediment load of all the rivers in the world, uh, and all the major rivers anyway. And that sediment drops out when the river hits the ocean and builds land. But that also means it built sandbars. And the sandbars were a tremendous commercial problem facing the entire Mississippi Valley. If you remember that first slide, you know, Pittsburgh is a port with direct access to the ocean because of the river. Tulsa, Oklahoma is a port today because of the Mississippi River. But all this was being stopped up as ships were getting bigger and bigger, uh, and it was a huge problem. Uh, Ede solved it by building those jetties, which just like narrowing the uh, nozzle of the garden hose, he narrowed the, for the current of the river, the channel of the river, pointed it at the sandbars, 
and they blew right through the, the river, blew right through the sandbars, and opened up uh, the commercial possibilities. Uh, it had tremendous impact. This is uh, the second blow. This is Cabin Tully crevasse in 1927, uh, just after it started. That ended up being more than half a mile wide. The average flow over Niagara Falls is about 70,000 cubic feet of water a second. This crevasse carried more like 300,000, possibly more than that. So more than four times the average flow of Niagara Falls was coming out of the river in that crevasse. It wasn't the only crevasse. Uh, and it flooded. You could go from Vicksburg to Monroe by boat. And there were also flood on the other side of the river. So at its widest point in 1927, the river was actually close to 100 miles wide. Oh, let's skip. So the, the uh, 1927 flood was the second blow and probably one of the single biggest blows to the Louisiana coast in terms of interpreting, in, in, in terms of interfering with natural uh, flows of sediment and things like that. There had been levees on the Mississippi River almost from the day New Orleans was founded. There was an almost complete system on the lower river by the Civil War. But these were not great levees. There were floods in a big one in 1882, probably close to as big as 1927. There were floods after that. There was 1897, 1903, 1907, 1912, 1913, 1916, 1917, 1922. Every one of those floods, somewhere along the line, there were leakages, there were crevasses. There was a levee system, but it was not sealed. So there was still sediment, and I skipped over this, uh, almost going back to that first slide. Again, I'm assuming certain knowledge in this room, but I should say it anyway rather than assume it. I think you all know that all of coastal Louisiana was created by the deposit of sediment of the Mississippi River. All the land from Cape Girardeau, Missouri, was made by the deposit to the Gulf of Mexico was made by the deposit of sediment. There's about 4,000 square miles or so, maybe a little more than that, that was made directly from various mouths of the river as it moved east and west. Another several thousand square miles made as coastal currents carried the sediment from the mouth of the river to the west toward Lake Charles. In total, about 8,000 square miles of the coast was made by the, by the river. So 1927 comes along uh, because they were largely responsible, at least partly responsible for the disaster. The federal government decided they were going to build a high-quality levy system. Uh, and since that levy system was completed, uh, there has not been a crevasse on a main levy of the Mississippi River. Uh, so all these leakages that used to occur stopped occurring. And the sustaining sediment from overflows stopped 
stop feeding and helping to sustain coastal Louisiana. So that was certainly a big blow. The, the next was the Gulf Intracoastal Waterway. Now, the Gulf Intracoastal Waterway was first thought of in the 1870s. Uh, it was largely complete, uh, at least to Houston, by 1935, and maybe a little bit further west. And the Gulf, the GIWW started allowing quite a bit of saltwater intrusion. And it was f the first of the main navigation channels uh, that started killing all, you know, saltwater intrusion, kills the plants. The Louisiana coast is not like New England, where you have rocks, you know, uh, it's mud held together by roots. You kill the plants, the roots die, there's nothing to hold the mud together, it basically melts into the ocean. So this was an important factor in saltwater intrusion. Interestingly, the Missouri, I said at the beginning that the Mississippi historically carried, was number seven of major rivers in the world in terms of carrying sediment. The Missouri was number two. Most of the sediment in the Mississippi River came out of the Missouri River. Historically, there are about 400 million tons of sediment that the Mississippi River dumped into the Gulf of Mexico every year. Almost 200 million tons of that came out of the Missouri. Everything else provided the other 200 million tons. And the idea was you would build these enormous reservoirs, and in low water, you would release the water so that you could get a, a certain minimum height, uh, depth of water, so you could have barge traffic up there. Okay, and this is a construction of the, another dam, the Garrison Dam. And this is what happened. Before the uh, dams were constructed, there are, according to the Corps of Engineers, there are 40,000 dams on the entire Mississippi River system. There are six dams out of 40,000 on the upper Missouri River, which retain 100 million tons of sediment a year that used to come down here. The last one was completed in the early 60s, according to the U.S. Geological Survey. After that dam was completed, quote, the flow of sediment virtually stopped, unquote. The jetties, the levees, the dams, the navigation channels, all that humans have built that helped make Louisiana, Louisiana, with the exception of the ones on the Missouri River, which don't affect us other than negatively. Uh, but it wasn't all, I mean, the, the, uh, the people living on the coast uh, created a few problems themselves. You know, for example, the way they farmed rice ended up creating a lot, salt, a lot of saltwater intrusion. So we have, you know, far agriculture as well as the other issues. If there was not a single levee anywhere on the Mississippi River, the flood plain stops around Vermilion Bay. So if it were only the levees, there would be no land loss in the western part of the state. This is Cameron 
tariffs. And if you say, well, it's all hurricane damage, uh, the areas next to this, if not in the picture, are healthy, where there was no oil activity. So you all these little spider webs things, those are all oil canals. And actually, the GIWW is right up here. And that's one of the things the GIWW did, was it gave access, uh, easy access to all these areas for oil exploration. OK, did the industry obey the law? Well, going back to 1920, there were, there were laws and regulations that would have prohibited a lot of these activities. They became increasingly specific until 1980 when they became absolutely explicit. Uh, since, 19, since the levees built after 1928 on the mainline levees. There actually was, in the 2011 flood, which was a very, very big flood, very big. The Corps thinks it was bigger than 1927. I'm not so sure. It's hard to, there was definitely more water in the river in 1927, but they didn't have, in 1927, these enormous reservoirs. You know, the coastline of the reservoirs on the upper Missouri River, which I talked about earlier, that's a longer coastline than California's coastline. Those are enormous reservoirs. So it's hard to figure exactly what the flow would have been if those and other reservoirs elsewhere on the Mississippi River system were not in existence. If you add them all in, it's possible 2011 would have been bigger than, 20, than uh, 1927. Anyway, it was a big enough flood that maybe 80 miles, 90 miles downriver from New Orleans, where they don't really have a very powerful levee system. If you remember that uh, the slide where I, all the sediment was leaking out down at the Birdsfoot Delta. Okay, there was an actual break in the levee right here. It's called Marty. Uh, a guy named uh, John Lopez from the Lake Pontchartrain Basin Foundation named it Mardi Gras Pass because it happened right around Mardi Gras. And this is 2016, so last year. Uh, this is sediment that is pouring out Mardi Gras Pass, which is a very small, effectively it's a diversion that is part of the master plan to build. The sediment filling up oil and gas canals. I mean, obviously, there's water in them. They're not full of sediment. But over a period of time, that can be filled in. And that's the possibility you get with diversions. Now, as bad as the situation looks for Louisiana, and it's quite possible, depending on how bad sea level rise is, that we could do everything right and still go underwater, and you could still have beachfront property in Lafayette or Opelousas. But we have a chance. And the reason we have a chance is because of the Mississippi River. If you are built on a rock and sea level rises, you are underwater, period. But this is a living, dynamic system. And if you have, and sea level rise doesn't go up 10 feet in a day. 
If it goes up 10 feet, we're going underwater. But it doesn't have, may not go up there that much. It goes up very gradually. And if you provide sediment and fresh water, that land will adjust and rise with sea level. That's what gives us a fighting chance. That's what makes it worthwhile to at least try to do something. If it weren't for that, you should all just tell your kids and grandkids, move. But that makes it worthwhile fighting. In the average person's lifetime, there's a better than 60% chance they will see at least, at least one storm bigger than a 100-year storm, at least. Since 1927, there have been multiple floods. That's 90 years ago. There was 19 that have exceeded the 100-year standard, some of which have smashed it. The 27 flood, the 37 flood, the 73 flood, and the 2011 flood. That's four floods in 90 years, each of which broke the 100-year standard for a flood. Whether we take advantage of that chance or not is up to you. two months to swim 2,350 miles. Would you ever do that? Nope. Nope, me neither. Huh. Yep. I, I would probably um, use a boat to do it, but I would not swim it. Oh, yeah. It takes 90 days for a drop of water to travel the full length of the Mississippi River. Yeah. Well, I know that the speed of the Mississippi River is one point two miles per hour at the headwaters and three miles per hour 
once it reaches New Orleans. Colonel Stephen Murphy serves as the 64th Commander of the New Orleans District U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Colonel Murphy's Army career began in 1997 when he received his commission as an engineer officer from the Illinois Institute of Technology. Over the last 22 years, he has served at all echelons within the Army, to include assignments with Armored, Striker, Airborne, and Special Operations Units, as well as the interagency in Washington, D.C. No stranger to USACE, Colonel Murphy commanded the Nashville District from 2015 to 2017, where he delivered a civil works program estimated at $290 million annually, with a focus on navigation, hydropower, and flood risk management. Colonel Murphy has deployed to combat four times in both Iraq and Afghanistan, as well as to peacekeeping operations in the Balkans. Within the United States, he has participated in humanitarian assistance missions to include fighting forest fires in Montana and providing hurricane relief in New Orleans following Hurricane Katrina. Colonel Murphy comes to the New Orleans District from Carlisle, Pennsylvania, where he recently graduated from the U.S. Army War College. Colonel Murphy has a Bachelor of Science and a Master of Science in Civil Engineering, as well as a Master of Arts in Strategy from the Army War College. Hi, my name is Colonel Stephen Murphy, and I'm the commander of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers New Orleans District. And what does that mean? What that means is I am commander of almost an 1,100-person district, almost completely of Department of the Army civilians. There's just a few military in there. Um, typically, people hear Army and they think, oh, hey, there's a lot of people in the Army, in the Army Corps of Engineers, and there's actually not. It's mostly uh, Department of the Army civilians and federal employees. And we're responsible for really southern Louisiana. If you think of our boundaries, it's um, west to really almost the border with Texas, uh, Sabine River. And then in the east, it's the Pearl River. And north, if you think up where uh, the old river control complex is, up where um, the Red River is, Red River and the Mississippi come together. And I am responsible for all the civil works within those boundaries. All right. Is that, um, how does that compare with um, some of your other assignments with the Army Corps of Engineers? Well, it compares with other assignments in the Army Corps of Engineers just in really the scope down here in New Orleans. So I've been in the Army 23 years. You know, I'm a Fulberg colonel. And in the Army, I think a lot of people don't understand is that you can go back and forth in your career between tactical assignments, like with actual brigades and battalions, you know, folks who carry weapons, and um, in the Corps of Engineers. And there's just a lot of opportunity in the Corps, especially as you progress in rank. So my first assignment with the Corps was uh, when I commanded the National District, which is a Lieutenant Colonel Command. And very similar to New Orleans, it was a Civil Works-only district, which means we didn't have any military construction mission. There's no building barracks or um, training ranges or anything like that. That's the military construction side of the house that the Corps does have a big piece in for the uh, military. But on the Civil Works side, it's navigation focus, flood risk management, ecosystem restoration. And so Nashville um, is about half the size of here. Uh, a little larger than half the size, but a similar mission on the Cumberland and Tennessee River. So it was a great primer for introducing me to the core, how it works, how it interacts with stakeholders, how it interacts with Congress. Um, there's an entirely different language, like acronyms in the core than, <laughs> than the Army. But uh, it was a great experience. It was a two-year command. 
that uh, helped prepare me for New Orleans. Now, I was going to say, with New Orleans District, New Orleans, there's 43 districts in the Corps of Engineers. And um, 34 of those are full-blown colonel districts. So there's a lot of opportunities as you progress in rank in the Army as an engineer officer. And New Orleans District is one of the larger, more complex districts. And typically, they don't pick a commander who hasn't had previous command experience in the Corps. So if you didn't command a district at the lieutenant colonel level, uh, in most instances, you wouldn't get selected to come um, command in New Orleans because it, it is a complex environment. Yeah, so um, it was an exciting first year. I assumed command on June the 11th, and um, shortly thereafter, I, mean, I was straight out of the U.S. Army War College, which every rank in the Army, pretty much they send you to school to prepare you for uh future ranks. And uh, I had just reported from the Army War College as commander of this massive district with just, if you don't realize this, and, and some people in in South Louisiana do realize this, I think a lot don't, just because it happens around them. But the absolute strategic importance of this state mm-hmm. and of the Mississippi River and, you know, five of the nation's top 15 ports here, it's just, I think it's lost on a lot of people. And so it's an incredibly important mission that the Corps does, the Coast Guard does. I mean, all these agencies, really what we do in South Louisiana impacts the nation. So I took command, and then, um, golly, not even two, three weeks later, you know, Hurricane Barry was coming in. And it wasn't just that Hurricane Barry, you know, there's a lot of Gulf hurricanes. But Hurricane Barry in its uh, early tracks was supposed to come right over New Orleans. And as if that wasn't bad enough, last year was the um, the Mississippi River. We, we, had, we were in the longest flood fight we have ever been in in the Corps' history. 292 days, nine and a half months with the river above flood stage. The Mississippi River passed more water, volume of water, total volume of water, last year than it has in the Mississippi River and tributary system. So all the levees and flood walls that, that line it really uh, from where it, it starts north of us down, they pass more water than it ever has. So the river's high. A hurricane's coming in um, at New Orleans, and there were just significant concerns with, you know, what's going to happen with hurricane storm surge on top of, you know, an already high river. Will the levees and flood walls be able to survive? How will the hurricane storm damage risk reduction system do but um here thankfully providentially the storm changed changed track and uh, went west did not hit new orleans but i will tell you there is a great team in south louisiana and i'm not just saying that as, as a talking point from the uh state's emergency management team and the governor on down to the Coast Guard, to CPRA, to Department of Transportation. Uh, we have great relationships with our partners, and um, it was just great to see how folks were working together. And nothing goes perfect, but um, there's a saying in the Army that uh, I've liked that is relationships determine results. And the relationships that the Corps has with a lot of our partners and stakeholders before these storms make all the difference during the storms. And that was, um, you know, there's a lot of talk right now, uh, Hurricane Katrina, 15 year anniversary, the rivers at flood stage, what does that mean? And that, 
I think what was one of the biggest takeaways for the Corps of Engineers was the importance of relationships, having relationships with the state, with the levy districts, with the parishes before these events so that you're not trying to figure things out during and after the events. But it was. It was an exciting first year, but it was an incredibly, um, it was a steep learning curve. But I also got to meet and build relationships with people in a few short weeks that would probably have taken me months, if not the whole first year of my command, to uh, establish. So for that, I'm thankful. You know, what lessons has the Corps learned? Like, how have we changed? And so from seeing New Orleans post-Katrina and, you know, what that's, that uh, storm did to the city and where we are now is just night and day. Like, really, the system is the strongest it has ever been. It is, for, it represents really a $14.5 billion investment by the American people in this city, which is truly amazing considering the number of cities in the United States that, you know, that are important, that have weather challenges, flooding challenges. But to me, it just, it speaks to the strategic importance of New Orleans and South Louisiana, just energy, navigation, commerce, energy and all the other commerce without the Corps playing a role to help um, protect the environment. And so we have, those are some of the busiest people in the district right now are our regulators. And you know about the, the role uh, we play with the other five federal agencies, uh, or the five federal agencies in the state through QIPRA with coastal restoration. And to me, QIPRA and our involvement in that, that, that is a tried and true coastal program because every year it makes investments in uh, coastal restoration. And a lot of times, I think it's a great incubator for projects. We figure out things that work, things that don't work. And um, the state would not be as well protected were it not for Quipra. Yes, I would agree. So the Corps of Engineers uh, is aligned on watershed boundaries for the most part. So it's like the New Orleans district is not just, you know, it doesn't follow the state of Louisiana's boundaries. It follows watersheds. That being said, the Mississippi Valley Division, which is my higher headquarters, really aligns the east and west banks of the Mississippi River all the way up to um, Minnesota, up to the Canadian border. And uh, there are six districts that make it up. And uh, New Orleans District is the southernmost of them. And I talk to these five other commanders very regularly. I know we coordinate a lot with more uh, regularly with Memphis and Vicksburg District, which are just north of us on the river. And the Corps is a very regionally based organization. So we share assets. We share, uh, we certainly plan together. Um, you know, the river, same river flows through all of us. So, for example, the Memphis district controls what's called the mat sinking unit. So as the Mississippi River flows, especially when it's at flood stage, you know, it flows faster and harder. There's more scouring and erosion on the banks. Well, the mat sinking unit essentially lays down um, anchored concrete carpets. And it just prevents the, the scouring on key areas of the river. Well, we plan with the uh, Memphis district, 
the Rollins Diner has you know, a bunch of barges and, and tugs and stuff like that. A really unique piece of equipment. If you ever search for it on YouTube, it's a Matt Tinking unit. But we need them working down in our district on our critical points. So we coordinate between them and Vicksburg District on, hey, what are your priorities? Where should we go first? So it's very much a regional effort to get after the USACE mission of, um, in this case, uh, protecting the riverbanks from erosion. So I'm curious, what other challenges are you looking for uh, forward to over the next few months? Uh, well, the river, thankfully, is is dropping. It's a, it's a slow drop. We came out of phase two, which for us, phase two is 24-7 operations in my emergency operations center and daily inspections on the levees with uh, you know our partners at the levee districts. And so dropping into phase one means twice weekly inspections, and it just it's it's a little less demanding on the employees. So we're still vigilant. Um, you know, I've I've been asked the question. You know, what are you doing to prepare for hurricane season? And and the hurricane and flood fight are both very similar. We're preparing year round for both. Mm-hmm. So um, we you know, Corps of Engineers is known for its uh, science and engineering expertise, unique to this year with the high river at the same time as the hurricane. We developed a new uh, storm surge atlas. It's a series of essentially 152 graphs that are based on 152 synthetic storms. Synthetic meaning, you know, just planned storms, you know, all different variables and conditions for the types of storm, tracks of storms, you know, wind speeds, surge. And what these um, graphs will allow us to do is... um, really estimate what we think storm surge will look like at various points along the river based on different storms, because every storm is different. Um, one of the messages that I'd pass along to viewers is, you know, a unique challenge that we anticipate in the next three months is, you know, if a hurricane rolls in while we are at High River, a lot of people assume, well, if the river, I'll just use the Carrollton Gauge, which is outside my headquarters on the Mississippi, you know, if the Carrollton's at 15 feet and the storm surge for, let's say, you know, the next hurricane says three and a half feet, well, 15 plus three and a half is 18 and a half feet. Well, it's not that simple because it's, you know, you, you can't just add the storm surge to the, the river stage. Um, there's so many complex factors. And one of the analogies I've been using with folks to help understand that is if the Mississippi River is at low stage, it's like being at the end of the hallway. And the Mississippi River is a group of three, four, five people walking down a normal size hallway. Um, and you're trying to get past them. You're trying to move up river, up hallway. Well, when the river's low and there's not that many people in the hallway, it slows you down a little bit, but you can still get up the hallway decently. But when the river's at high stage, it's just imagine, um, a whole lot more people in the hallway moving against you. And that's the, that's the massive, powerful force that the Mississippi River is when it's at high stage. I mean, it's powerful regardless, but when, you know, it's at, you know, 12, 14, 16, 17 feet, that's a lot of water, a lot of velocity. And it's, it counteracts the storm surge. So while the storm surge can still get up the river, it doesn't get up as much or as fast. And so I've had folks ask, you know, in the Baton Rouge area, hey, you know, are you concerned about storm surge in Baton Rouge 
you know, if there's a hurricane while the river's still high. You know, the Corps looks at all that, but my message is, you know, you can't just hey, say, hey, there's a three-foot storm surge and our stage and back moves is this, and therefore X plus Y equals Z, and we're going to have overtopping. I mean, you always, we all, we all share in the risk living along the river, mm-hmm. and we all do our part. And the Corps does its part by maintaining the system, by armoring the system, making it uh, resistant to overtopping. If there's ever a storm that's greater than it's designed for, and you know, with the state and the local levy districts share their portion of the risk by doing much of the same, inspecting, maintaining, and then the public shares their portion of the risk by having flood insurance and being prepared to evacuate if uh, local officials call for an evacuation. So up and down the river, there's a shared risk, but unique to a challenge that we expect to see this summer is the river's high and we're moving into hurricane season. But I did want to pass that on, that it's, yeah, it's not just simple math. Do you know, I like to think that we have a, um, a very good relationship, certainly with our partners and stakeholders, which is our primary interaction on a daily basis for um, executing our mission. So working with the levy districts, the parishes, with the state, all the different state agencies. Um, for the public, provide feedback. I, I got a letter just recently where somebody wrote in and said, hey, I'm really concerned. I see a lot of, you know, puddling on the street where there's not normally puddling. You know, I'm afraid this might be seepage. Mm-hmm. And again, especially when we're at, at uh, flood fight phase two, you know, that, that's an area that we will send inspectors or coordinate with a levy district to send inspectors to look at. So the public's eyes and ears are extremely important to us on the levy because there's things that you know can pop up after an inspection gone by but the the public can help identify any risk or concerns so that uh, we can come out and take a look at it well we we talked uh, to one of the largest civil works programs in the core you know it's really easy to focus on the hurricane storm damage risk reduction system which we're we'll be finishing up really in the next two years the state owns and operates now the majority of the what was formerly called the Hurricane Protection System around New Orleans, but there's so much more work that the New Orleans District has going on throughout Louisiana to bring um, hurricane storm surge risk reduction. I mean, we have, in 2018, we got a massive supplemental and billions of dollars, and we have six studies going on, St. Tammany Parish. Um, we have construction projects going on, Comey, East Baton Rouge, um, West Shore, Lake Pontchartrain. But New Orleans, a lot of times, people tend to focus because Katrina and everything, but there is, there is, there are core projects going on, core studies that uh, really line almost the entire Louisiana coast uh, focused on flood risk management. You mentioned that your son really enjoys the fishing, so you don't have to give away your sweet spots, but where do you guys enjoy fishing most? Well, a lot of times it's the, it's little 
ponds and watering holes, but uh, Chifunta River probably be one of them. That's up near where we live, so it's an easy drive. Okay. I won't tell you any more than that. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> Flyway is a major migration path for birds that follows along the Mississippi River. It is used by about 40% of the migratory birds that spend the spring and summer in the U.S. The Mississippi River is home to 360 species of fish. 326 species of birds, and 145 species of amphibians, and 50 species of mammals. The FCC also uses it as the dividing line for broadcast call signs, which begins with W to the east and K to the west. Mixing together in media markets along the river. Okay, the portion of the river from St. Louis to New Orleans, 700 miles, is free of dams which allow large train trains of barges some as long as 2,000 feet to transport commodities between these two cities. Approximately 460 million tons of freight freight are transported on the Mississippi River each year. Committees transported on the river include agriculture, crops, coal, steel, petroleum, and aluminum. Aluminum. exhibitions at the Hilliard Art Museum on the campus of the University of Louisiana, Lafayette. I like photographing architecture. I like photographing landscapes. I also like photographing culture or humanity. And that, that was the focus of Project in France. And it's definitely the focus of this book, uh, you know, that it's not just the bridges, it's not just the landscape, it's the world of humanity that swirls in the realm of these bridges. And um, that's often the, the case. And to be honest, the most rewarding moments photographically were the humanitarian ones because I never saw the picture coming. It just appeared. Suddenly it's there, my God, you know. And so that's a real treat because you, you can't plan that. Spans 
uh, early in the morning and, and got done, put the drone down and was walking back to uh, the car and uh, this is on the levee. And I saw this man holding his, standing on the levee, holding his hands up in the air. And I just looked at him and I just said, this is interesting. And he stopped and he said, hey, how are you doing? Very friendly. And I said, um, I'm, I'm just, I'm just curious what you're doing. And he said, I'm holding my hands up in prayer. I align myself with the bridges in order to align myself to God. And that by having that sense of connection to the spans, he felt connection to the divine. I thought, that's interesting. I'll take it, you know, and um, thank you very much. And we had a nice pleasant visit and everything like that, but, you know. And it's in the book? The it, image it is, is in on the, book? the back cover. Oh my God, yes. On the back cover. All right. Yeah, it's also in the book. I mean, it's it was just one of those moments when I realized that the humanitarian side of, of this portrayal was essential and, and um, a key part of the project. Photographing these bridges that are essentially inert, but it always seems like they're moving. It seems like they might get up and walk away right out of the photo. The way the way that he's framing them and the people that are doing things, there's this implied emotion that I think references the histories or the stories that he's telling in the composition. And it's, it, it, I think it's important to say that. And the truth is that there, there's plenty of motion everywhere and the one thing that's not moving are the bridges. <laughs> I was actually up with Robert Dafford going up to uh, Kentucky to promote the book that UL Press did on him. And we crossed the bridge in Cairo, Illinois, late at night, very cold, 10, 15 degrees. And as we were crossing, I could see, and there must have been some sort of mist in the air, because I could see these trucks and these cars, their headlights bouncing off the uh, bridge and light just shining everywhere. It was just this most amazing sight. And I, wow, that'd be great, I should stop. And I said, ah, it's cold, you know, and that, I, you know, I, for a while I just said, that's not good, I should have stopped. But what happened was that that moment morphed into the idea of, well, let's, let's do a book on the river, the bridges crossing the river, because if this one is that compelling, there are probably many more. And so that's how the project got started, and then there was a process of um, acquitting myself with the bridges, um, and that was an interesting Voyage of Discovery in itself, um, eventually found a website that showed them all, and that was very helpful. The first bridge built across M Mississippi River, the Mississippi River was in 1855, with the first railroad bridge finished a year later in 1856. Did you intend to photograph every single bridge across the Mississippi? No. Okay. Um, I photographed about half of the bridges. There's 135. There's about 70 book, 70 bridges in the book that are shown or represented. And um, there's a lot of bridges that are very basic, standard stuff. And a lot of the bridges I photographed are standard, but they also have some kind of story connected to them. But are, and so that makes them a bit, a bit more compelling and relevant. So. Um, you know, and then you go up above Minneapolis, the navigable water uh, from the Mississippi River stops in Minneapolis. You can't take a, a commercial boat any further upstream. In fact, you really can't go much further than St. Paul. But um, 
there are a lot of bridges out past that that are just very like it's 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 like bridges crossing the Mississippi River Creek. <laughs> it's very the river's almost insignificant. Right. You know, it's 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 smaller than the Vermilion Bayou. Had you ever been to the headwaters of the Mississippi before? No. Okay. I mean, I saw plenty of photographs of it, and I, I had a sense of it. It was interesting to get there. You know, the summer we went up, Marco and I went up and visited some, with some friends. And there's some people just gathered all around, and, and it wasn't quite a pilgrimage, but it was kind of in that that basic direction that they were coming to that magic spot where this mythic river has its storybook beginning of water flowing out of a lake through some boulders into a little creek that eventually becomes what we know down in it's, Louisiana. Yeah. So, um, but it was it was fascinating, and um, uh, I was informed by the Park Service that this lake is in a state park, Lake Itasca State Park. And um, half a million people go there each year, so it's 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 a very steady um, quantity of folks that, that visit the park and, and the headwaters because that's the main attraction for the. So did you? Um, so let's talk about. So how did you get around? Did you drive the length of the Mississippi River? Yeah. You did that. Yeah. I did not get in a boat. No, but I. Um, <coughs> that would have been incredibly unproductive. You were a couple times <laughs> in a boat. Yeah, I got a boat, you know, specifically for different things. I got in a boat with a, um, a towboat going up through uh, St. Louis that arranged for that, which was very interesting. Um, towboats and bridges have a, or watercraft and bridges have a long um, relationship, not always great. Uh, in fact, it's still not great. Uh, one engineer told me that. Uh, bridges and towboats are engaged in this long, delicate dance with each other, and you know they can't. The music will never stop, and they can't get off the dance floor. And they're faced with <laughs> having to acknowledge and, and respond to the other. And uh, um, what you're going to do? That's just the way it is. And, and the person who told me that was an engineer. I don't know if you all remember a couple of years ago when the Sunshine Bridge was hit by a crane and put a whopping dent that one of the engineers fixing that mm. told me that and I said towboat captain John Craigwell who communicated this um, through text I was asking him about you know what are your experiences um, you know with bridges on the Mississippi River and he said uh, I will quote here bridges are the toughest obstacles because there's very little room for error and the river is constantly throwing errors our way. And that said, thus far, I have not personally hit a bridge. So <laughs> that's quite a pride. <laughs> right. One captain said, anyone who tells you they haven't had a close call is lying to you. <laughs> I worked very closely with a fellow who was um, an engineer who was actually building a bridge. Um, Pat Shea, who works for Kramer in North America, which is a moderate sized bridge building company up based in Wisconsin and he got me there was a bridge being built in Savannah Illinois and um, it was replacing a bridge that was there um, built in 1931 and it was getting a little rusty a little um, 
A little scary. A little, a little scary. And, and <laughs> what, what, what the brutal truth is, it was a little thin and a little narrow. And there's a moment where I saw and actually photographed two semi-trucks passing each other on the bridge. And there was about three inches of room between their rear view mirrors. I mean, and they just kind of just slowly pass each other. I said, this is the argument for the new bridge. <laughs> and, and it's the same true for the Huey Long Bridge. Oh, that's I mean, exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> you know, the, the joke about the Huey Absolutely. Long Bridge is that more Novenas are said crossing the Huey Long Bridge than all the churches in New Orleans. You know, so that, this is back in the day. Now it's a totally different story. Absolutely. Um, the, the thing about, you know, we're talking about coastal Louisiana and co the coast and all that and the, the nature of the wetlands. The, the history of building bridges on the Mississippi River has been one of several factors. One is the the forces that were in in play very much so for westward expansion. Um, another thing was the fact that the railroads were coming into their to their strength, and the pressure to build bridges across the Mississippi, the biggest and baddest and widest and most difficult bridge river to cross, was um, just incredibly great. Um, you also had riverboat, the riverboat industry, which had basically a monopoly on river commerce. And they had every legislature in every state along the river in their pocket. They controlled them and all this. So you had this, and they were also operating a, a dinosaur of a technology. And when you compare railroads to riverboats, you know, there's no comparison. And so what you had to do was this, this slow force of the railroads just slowly eating away at that thing. The other thing that was part of it was um, the technologic, technological means to build bridges was limited. They, they used iron, which um, is actually a very soft metal. And it wasn't until the 1860s when um, in St. Louis, um, a fellow named James Buchanan Eads who people may know as being very involved in the history of the river, um, was asked by the city of St. Louis to build a bridge there because they needed to have a railroad connection to this city, which was on the West Bank and in peril of just being rendered into insignificance. Um, and so he never went to engineering school, had no formal education, never built a bridge, but he hired a good team and, and the city trusted him just totally. And um, the thing that he was aware of was that steel production on a large scale was just beginning. And he realized that steel would be this element that would make it strong enough. And that, you know, they'd never done this before. They'd never used a bridge, used steel building a bridge. But he knew intuitively, instinctively, that, that this was the way to do it. And, um, Another, another interesting point, in the um, 18, the first bridge to cross the Mississippi River for railroads was 1856. It was in Davenport, Iowa, or just above it, Rock Island, Illinois, there was a, a military fort there. And uh, they built the bridge, and two weeks after it opened, a riverboat crashed into it, lost power, crashed into it, caught fire, burned the boat, sank the boat, and burned up the bridge rendering it you know, seriously damaged. 
Um, and the bridge company found itself, or the railroad, I should say, found itself being sued by the railroad country company because this bridge was uh, a hazard to proper navigation and you know that they should not have the right to cross the Mississippi River with bridges like this. So you had this um, trial on one side you had the railroads, on the other side you had the bridge, and it was like this is the clash, this is the historic clash, it's going to determine a great deal about how bridges are built. One of the lawyers working for the railroad company was Abraham Lincoln. And he was the one who had that political skill to articulate things very simply, very clearly and plainly. And it was a, a skill that he used very often, you know, quite effectively as when he entered politics. But he argued that, you know, and the Supreme Court eventually agreed that, that um, people should have as much of a right to cross the river as they should have the right to safely sail underneath. And that's how it ended. And the, the riverboat industry kept trying to block this, but they eventually gave up. And so now we have this long, delicate dance instead. So the never-ending dance. Never-ending dance. The song, the, the song never ends. You know, you can't get off the dance floor. You're stuck there. So anyway, yeah. I love the quote that you paired with that particular image. Uh, you know, Lincoln was down by the river, uh, kind of seeing the lay of the land, and was asked by a boy what he was doing there, and he said. I'm mighty glad I came out here where I can get a little less opinion and a little more fact. And <laughs> you know, it's, you got to do your research. Right. And uh, I think that that is perhaps my favorite linking quote now. Yeah, so, right. That's a good one. She, she's not. Did you know that Mississippi used to take trains on barges, on ferries, and put them on to boats and ferry the whole train across the river to get to Natchez. Nope, didn't know that. Uh -huh. And then they'd go up the hill, on under the hill, and they'd go straight up the hill to come up to the top of Natchez onto the block with goods. How do you know that? Because I work at the Historic Natchez Foundation, and we have pictures. So, all right, so you talked about the um, the first bridge across the Mississippi that burned two weeks later. Right, 1856. Um, and did you go to that site? Yeah, um, there was another bridge there, basically in the same spot. Yeah, a railroad bridge probably built in the 1890s. And it's, it's rock solid, you know, and, and there are locking dams and, you know, so all rivercraft can get past the bridge safely without any difficulty. So tell us about some of the other bridges that you documented in the book. Let's talk about New Orleans. My favorite, building bridges across the river was a matter of technology, the development of technology. With each thing that they learned how to do, they could go further south and you know, cross a wider span. Um, Memphis in 1892 was proud of itself because they had built the first bridge across the whole river because the Ohio River and the Mississippi and Missouri and all these other rivers had come together and so that was a big deal. Um, and the ultimate challenge was, uh, was in New Orleans because they were crying out they needed a bridge so bad um, to move a railroad 
train across the Mississippi River took days. They had to break it up into small, you know, two or three cars and then put it on ferries and put it all back together again. You know, a whopping headache and very inefficient. And but the problem was the terrain of, around New Orleans, which was silt, sediment, mud. Uh, some people called it gumbo soil. Just like there's, you know, the, the bedrock in New Orleans on Mississippi River is probably a thousand feet down. And so all these challenges, they didn't know how to, how to address them. And they finally developed the technology to, that you don't have to go to bedrock, you can, you know, set up the piers so they are stable in, you know, you go down a certain level and it's dry and, and you know, that will work. Um, and so, and then just building out into the marsh on either side, because it was all um, just unsettled area. The, there's pictures of the Huey Long Bridge on the West Bank where it's, you know, they're, they're building a bridge through a swamp. And, um, you know, that meant that quickly changed. So, um, the other thing too, that the, to me, the real star of the Huey Long Bridge is the railroad bridge, because it's four and a half miles long. It goes way, starts way, you know, inland on the Orleans side, and then just works its way up and does sort of this giant S curve, and, and you know, four and a half miles later, it's back on land, and that's because they need a 1.25 percent grade for trains to be able to, to cross, and um, so that was a big factor. The thing that I love about the the new expansion was that the um, the thing that I love about the new expansion was that they tested the original piers that were built in the 1930s. And, and you can imagine back then they didn't know, they weren't all that rock solid sure about how much strength they needed and all this kind of thing. So they overbuilt and they overbuilt the piers in the river to the point where when they tested them for, to, to the expansion, they, they realized that they were one, in great condition, and two, could carry much more load than what was on them because of the original bridge. And so they built these W-shaped um, metal support things jutting out from the original pier and were able to build, um, you know, the, the four, the, instead of 18 feet across, they were now 40 feet across and plenty of room for traffic and all this kind of thing. So the perilous journey was um, no longer. And um, that's just a, that's an amazing thing. And, and they also kept the profile of the bridge, so you look at it now, it looks the same as it did before. Um, and, you know, it's still beautiful. Oh, yeah. show, the, show the people listening the picture. Right? I'm showing you guys. <laughs> it's magnificent. Yeah, but you can really see the, how the, one, how they built the bridge and just how it's still pretty amazing. I know, I'm looking at that W structure you described and, wow, that's so impressive. So what was your favorite bridge? Oh my goodness. Is there one? Or five? Let's say there's, th let's say, let's call out three. Um, one is the Huey Long Bridge. I'm, I'm just, you know, uh, it could not have been built under any other governor, by the way. I mean, it took a, basically a political dictator to push it through and, and they needed that kind of political support to get it done. That has nothing to do with my opinions about whether Huey Long was a dictator or whether he was good or bad for the state. You know, he, from an infrastructure point, he modernized the state. Um, I just think it's just an amazing bridge. 
for the old technology reasons, and, and it's just also beautiful. Uh, the next bridge that I think is pretty amazing, uh, let's go to four, uh, the Ease Bridge in St. Louis, which is on the cover. Um, it is the first incorporation of steel, and it's just got this wonderful double, just amazing sense of metal framework underneath the bridge. And the uh, leading points out to it look like they're Roman aqueducts. So we had this strange combination of uh, uh, 19th century heavy metal and you know the Roman Empire sit there crossing St. Louis. The um, the next bridge that I like a lot is called the Black Hawk Bridge, which is up in a town called Lansing, Iowa. A tiny bridge um, built in 1931 or two, and it's a, it's an anomaly because it doesn't look like it would hold up. You have three sections two that are based on the, the towers, and then you have a second section, which is a little truss section that sort of sits like, it looks like it's just sitting there freestanding. And how does, how does this stay supported? And you know somehow it does. And it's just a totally charming bridge. It's totally, um, let me see if I can find it for you. And you, you ride over that, and you, know, you look like you're going, you feel like you're going through a time warp. It's absolutely charming. And it's an incredibly popular bridge on the Mississippi River, one of the best known small bridges. And uh, um, I love this shot and how you got that Main Street look. That's what I use. Great. That's a drone shot. Mm -hmm. and you don't, you can't again. You can't take that picture with anything else. So. Yeah. And when and people downtown say, "What's he doing?" He's, <laughs> well, so, um, so in the fourth bridge, just to oh, start. oh, uh, and a bonus, a fourth, because you said three, so and I changed my mind. Okay, uh, the fourth bridge is in Minneapolis. It is the, um, it is the. This, this is one shot of it. You can see where, um, in 2007, that the interstate bridge collapsed in downtown Minneapolis, and they built this bridge, which was technologically far more advanced, but they also built it to have this most wonderful design. And it's just totally charming. It is. Just that's, to see, um, you can see it here. Yeah, that's the one bridge that I have been to outside of the state, really. I did indeed. Let's talk about who uh, who works on the book. Dr. Margo Hasha, uh, who is my beloved wife, and I teamed up to do the text. And we, you know, I wrote a lot about the experiences um, observations, this kind of thing, um, and she took all that and blended into a lot of historical research and um, put together the, you know, we went back and forth on the, the text and, and, you know, worked it into um, what we wanted it to be, and um, so, yeah, it was great. Well, and she went on several of the trips, or she, most of the trips with you? Not most of them, but oh, she okay. did go up north. We went to the headwaters together. We were in Minneapolis. We went south, saw the Black Hawk and various other bridges up in the northern parts. My impression was it was an opportunity for him to leave the house and leave her alone to some extent. Uh. <laughs> well, that's, that's <laughs> where you are. <laughs> In the most endearing way possible. Well, you know, um, we were talking about sitting in a place for an hour and a half for a photograph to be taken. The photographer appreciates the importance of that. The person sitting there with that photographer <laughs> doesn't exactly. have the same intensity of appreciation. So, you know, things like that. I mean, it's 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 a solitary endeavor, and you really need to just be out 
on your own. You know when it's time to start, when it's time to stop. Yeah. That kind of thing. And you know how long, you know. Well, and that's one thing that's uh, so much fun to talk with you about. And I hope over the course of the exhibition we get to address that because sure. it's, it's one thing I enjoy the most about the whole project that isn't necessarily in the exhibition, but it'll be dealt with through interviews like this and programs is a kind of diaristic element or the the exploration of the American landscape in a in a kind of a, a visceral road trip kind of way. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. One thing that, that um, you know, especially in the small towns out in the, out the, the, the delta of the prairie around the Mississippi River, in the old days you would know you were coming to a town because you could see the church steeple. You're hearing the horse and buggy, oh, there it is, look, oh, we're almost there. Nowadays, you're far, four or five miles away, and what do you see? The first indicator of town, you see the spires of a bridge going up, and they're distant on the horizon, you say, okay, uh, we're getting close. And that was often the case. I mean, it was just, it was an absolute trip and, and pleasure to see this in the distance. Um, yes. Maybe more so than other curators, but for this one in particular, it's so personal that you couldn't do it any other way than to be in communication. So there's a blueprint drawn onto the wall of my office, and there's little paper versions to scale of everything. We've been, you know, lots of there's been a lot of consideration in terms of the layout. You know, like you experience the exhibition as though you would if you can go upriver or downriver and everything's in the right order, for example. Um, and there are special points of emphasis throughout. And I think that the sheer scale of the imagery, you know, in terms of just looking at it, they're big, even small, they're big pictures. And they're gonna be fairly large photographs and they're gonna match the size of the big gallery. Uh, I think in a, in a really pleasing way for people. So you can, seeing the proofs unframed at the table at Danny's office, right. um, you just see so much more. Like your ability to see more detail, it's kind of staggering because I'm a cynical person. So I'm like, ah, I have the thumbnails. You know, we'll see it. And then you see it as an object, as an art object rather than an image printed off some printer just in your office. And it totally changes your perspective and it changes the cynic into someone who's open to a sense of wonder, I guess. Is that the, do you feel that way? Um, I never knew you was a cynic, but that's, that's, that's okay. Um, I think that the, the, one of the things that you did that was smart was to make some of the pictures large. I mean, some of the picture prints are four or five feet wide. So you can literally walk, put, put yourself into the scene as though you're there. And many of them are just a little bit smaller, so you really have a sense of the um, of the of the scale of the of the, both the scale of the, the river, the bridges, and they correspond to the scale of the room. It's a large space. It is. Well and we talk about a lot, but you know, like it's important for the big photos to you know, you get that sense, but then so it comes down to just the simple notion that if everything were the same size, it might be boring. Um, and people, could, there are nooks and crannies in the exhibition, kind of based on print size to some extent, or color palette. And so right. 
you, you can't just stand the same distance from the wall to see the show. You're going to have to back up from some of these to look at them. You're going to have to go in and look at others. And there's a nice rhythm, and it's organic, kind of like how the Mississippi River is organic and kind of changing its channel, or it used to anyway. Yeah, still does in a lot of places. Well, no, it doesn't change the channel. I, 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 musically, you can compare it to some, uh, somebody playing a song at the same volume the whole way through, and other people, you know, building up to a peak, quieting it down, building up to a peak, and so you have this pacing, and, and you know, and it also just your eye can go whoa or to a smaller image and, and appreciate that for its 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 own uh, um, personality or value. There's going to be an inner chamber though, because Philip has prepared all of this information, um, and so we have a lot of his original the, the books he uses points of reference. We'll have some hands-on activities. So there's an aesthetic space in the exhibition where you know it's the images are sacrosanct and then kind of separate from it, so as not to spoil the experience of looking at the images. There will be Philip's source materials for his research. There will be a copy of his publication to peruse, and then there will be you know blocks so that you know you can understand what a keystone is in a bridge or how a suspension bridge works. Um, you know, and there's going to be, so the, the exhibition is slated currently to open on August 4th and it will be up for most of the year. Um, the close date I believe is August, or is uh, May 26th, I think, in 2021. So. Is that still 20? Yeah, it is. Okay. <laughs> my years. All right. Screwing okay. my years up. Yeah. Okay, so, so August 4th of 2020 through about May 26th of 2021. So oh. okay. <clears throat> our website is hilliardmuseum.org. We're located at uh, 710 East St. Mary, uh, right at the south end of the University of Louisiana at Lafayette's campus. If you're looking for the address to put into your GPS for a parking lot, that's 101 Gerard Park Drive. Yeah, hilliardmuseum.org or at Hilliard Museum on our social media platforms. We're on Instagram and, um, and Facebook, of course, and then we also have a YouTube channel. You can find it online. Uh, you can contact me, philipgould.com. One Alan Phillip, or you can go to Barnes and Noble, or call Amazon, or, or what have you. I mean, it's out there. Um, and when we're open, available, when we're, we're open, open to the public, we'll have it at the museum yeah. as well. Okay. At the museum as well. And it's published through LSU Press, correct? LSU Press, right. That's it for us today on the Coastal Connection. Hope you've enjoyed the adventure as we've explored the Mississippi River from a couple different perspectives. I hope the next time you're traveling along the river, you take a moment to think about the water, the infrastructure, the economy, the culture, 
and how you're going to be a steward of the Mississippi River. This podcast is brought to you by the Coastal Wetlands Planning, Protection, and Restoration Act. The QIPRA program is a federal legislation program enacted in 1990 designed to identify, prepare, and fund construction of coastal wetlands restoration projects. Since its inception, over 200 coastal restoration or protection projects have been authorized. For more information about the QIPRA program, find us online at lacoast.gov, become our friend on Facebook, or follow along in our Instagram adventures at QIPRA underscore outreach. We want to know what you're thinking. What are your questions and concerns about the coastal wetlands of Louisiana? Drop us a line on social media or email us directly at cwppra at gmail.com. The views and opinions expressed on this or any program on AOC Podcast Network do not reflect the views and opinions of Lafayette Consolidated Government, Cox Communications, LUS Fiber, AOC Community Media, its board of directors, or its staff. To learn more about becoming a community media producer, visit us on the web at aocinc.org.